Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at a couple of cantatas from Quasimoto Geniti Sunday, the first Sunday after Easter. These two cantatas have the reputation of being among Bach's greatest, and they both represent a further development of the Easter message, although the perspectives taken are somewhat different. We'll begin with cantata BWV 67, titled in English translation, Hold in Remembrance Jesus Christ. It was composed and first performed in Leipzig in 1724. The opening chorus is in A major and duple meter and the text, keeping as usual the translation of Francis Brown from the BachCantatas.com website is, Keep in memory Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead, from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. But as usual, there is an introductory orchestral ritonello, which introduces some of the thematic material which the choral voices will later exploit. The flute and strings open the movement with a harmonized triadic figure outlining the tonic chord against a more active counter melody in the two oboes and a descending continuo bass line. A fourth and very important thematic element is added by the horn, who begins in direct anticipation of the choral entry with a sustained tonic against all of this, a held note for over two bars that suggests the holding of Christ's memory. It goes on to preview the opening choral phrase, which is drawn from the first line of the chorale titled in translation, O Innocent Lamb of God, an early Lutheran hymn attributed to Nicolaus Decius. The horn then moves on to set up a series of embellished suspensions against the strings and bass line, after which it passes to a series of undulating eighth notes in emulation of the string's earlier passage. So, there's a lot going on in the opening 16-bar ritonello. When the chorus enters, it predictably relies on the same basic materials. The quotation from the aforementioned chorale melody first heard in the horn is now given also to the sopranos, while repeated half notes on the downbeat heard earlier in the strings are given to the lower voices, that is, before they begin their strong quarter note counter melody to the quoted chorale, with the strings and oboes playing counter melodies also derived from the introduction. After a brief orchestral interlude, drawing on the opening ritonello, we start up again, on the dominant this time, and with the voices switched around somewhat, the sustained tone originally in the sopranos now moving down to the basses. Here is an excerpt starting with the initial choral entrance. We're by no means done with quoting the O Innocent Lamb of God chorale melody from this point. In fact, its opening phrase permeates virtually the whole movement. But after another brief orchestral interlude, 
And as the chorale theme switches voices again, this time to the altos, we are introduced to a new element in the tenors, a longish and rather busy fugue theme. Here is a simplified example. I called it a fugue theme, but what follows is not really a fugue. The alto picks up a little of the subject down a fourth, and then decides to start all over again, this time down a fifth, and actually follows through this time. The tenor picks up the idea, but then wanders off from the subject somewhat, and ends up doubling the alto in parallel sixths. More serious attempts at imitation do pop up in the sopranos and altos, but earlier motives, including the O Innocent Lamb chorale melody, are never absent for long and frequently quite prominent. Here's an excerpt from the passage beginning with the fugal subject that never quite turns into a real fugue. Although we encounter new keys as we continue, including a surprising and brief stop-off at distant keys such as G-sharp major, and new, more homophonically-based sections, which you heard a little glimpse of near the end of my excerpt, there are also clear returns to the original thematic ideas, including the chorale quotation in more familiar keys. The movement concludes with a series of suspensions and some new syncopated figures as we approach the final cadence but we're going to move on now to the next movement, a tenor aria. The text for the tenor aria is perhaps less optimistic than one might expect, given we're only a week away from the celebration of Easter. My Jesus is arisen, so what still frightens me? My faith knows that my Savior is victorious, yet still my heart feels strife and battle. My salvation appear then. The text by itself seems to suggest a level of insecurity here, but as Julian Minchum, the excellent commentator on the BachCantatas.com website states, one might interpret this as the heart versus head contradiction. Knowing and feeling are not the same thing. But of course, we are not presented simply with the text, but with the musical setting of the text as well. How will Bach comment on the text through his music? The opening instrumental ritonello presents us with what appears to be a very confident, almost cheerful melody, with a quick little 16th note ascending scale fragment on the third beat of the first measure probably being its most distinctive feature. It seems, in fact, even to hint at the lighter gallant style found in some secular cantatas and sometimes in even more formidable sacred works, 
especially the gently syncopated rhythms and trill found in bar two. The third measure is a variant of the first, now having veered into F-sharp minor, and the fourth reproduces the third, now briefly in C-sharp minor. But by the fifth measure, we're back in major key territory, heading back to the original tonic, and the last two measures of the ritonello recapture the almost light-hearted gallant spirit of the first two. When the tenor soloist comes in over the dominant chord, the same musical mood prevails, at least initially, somewhat enlivened a bit by the echoing of that ascending 16th note motive in the instrumental texture accompanying the tenor. Some commentators hear a slight tilt toward a sense of foreboding near the end of the tenor's opening phrase, but I think that's doubtful, at least at this point. It's true that in the four-measure sequentially based instrumental ritonello that interrupts the vocal, a variant of this opening phrase is heard moving us briefly to F-sharp minor before sending us back to the dominant. But a repeat of the initial melodic idea in the relative minor harmony can hardly be considered a strong, effective gesture. Here is a short excerpt from the introduction of the tenor soloist to the end of the first orchestral interlude. The tenor returns back in E major, quoting the first two bars of its original theme, but now goes on to develop the motive from the second bar, quoting along the way the gallant-sounding fifth bar of the opening ritonello in the process. During this process, we're moving toward the key of B major, and there's not much evidence at this point of anything but confidence on the tenor's part. Up to this point, one would have to suggest that the answer to the question, what still frightens me, or in some translations, what should I fear, is apparently not much of anything. The next instrumental ritonello basically replicates the first in the new key of B major, and we then encounter the next section of the aria with a new text. My faith knows that my Savior is victorious, yet still my heart feels strife and battle. My salvation appear then. The text seems to suggest that the degree of tension in the music will also increase, and to some extent it does. We hear a new melodic idea in the tenor line, except, typically for Bach, it isn't completely new. The original theme in the opening ritonello had opened after an eighth note upbeat with a series of eighth notes which dropped down a fourth from the first note to the second. The first measure of this new tenor melody simply replaces the drop of a fourth with the drop of a major sixth. The rest of the measure mimics the original rhythmic pattern perfectly, while the melodic contour could be heard as a free inversion of the original theme. Here is the tenor's third entrance with its somewhat new idea all the way through to and including the next brief instrumental ritonello. Scheine doch mein Heil erschein, erschein. 
As you heard, much of the original theme has been repurposed here, as Bach touches lightly on a series of different keys. Some figures heard as anything but emotionally charged in their previous context now come off more as sighing figures here, adding a touch of poignance, if not exactly dramatic intensity. Some new motives do appear, however, notably a quick little descending triadic motive on the words Erschanadok entreating salvation or the Savior himself to appear. By the end of the tenor's entrance, we have arrived in B minor, and when the orchestra, in its brief ritornello, returns to the two-bar tag from its opening ritornello, motives which had sounded almost gallant earlier now take on a considerably more somber tone. The tenor's final entrance, which repeats the last section of the text, is the most florid, marked initially by cascading sixteenth-note passages before returning to more familiar motivic territory. It returns us to E major and the final instrumental ritornello, which replicates the opening ritornello and takes us to the final cadence. In his excellent book, Bach, Music in the Castle of Heaven, John Elliott Gardner refers to Bach's ability to humor and soften the severity of his texts while in no way blunting their impact. He goes on to laud Bach's exceptional level of engagement with the words, his music going far beyond literal mimesis or the codified use of conventional figures and symbols. The point is an excellent one, since on the one hand, we know how skilled Bach was at word painting, a point made in some of these episodes and frequently elsewhere as well. But on the other hand, Bach never makes himself a slave to every detail of the text, often summing up his larger perspective on the text with musical passages which don't always stop to characterize every word. That seems to be the case here. While the text seems to shift from some level of confidence to a greater level of anxiety, Bach does not here become preoccupied with reflecting the text on a word-by-word -word basis, instead providing a musical setting which summons up just the interpretation he desires. An alto recitative comes next, beginning in C-sharp minor and concluding on F-sharp major, with the anonymous text in translation being, My Jesus, you are called death's poison and a plague for hell. Alas, that I should still meet with danger and fear. You yourself put on our tongues a song of praise, which we sang and then the recitative leads directly into the chorale, The Glorious Day Has Appeared. This rather grim text is given an appropriately dark and tension-filled setting, which lightens somewhat in the final bars to prepare us for the chorale which follows it.
The text for the chorale in B major and in triple meter is, The glorious day has appeared when no one can rejoice sufficiently. Christ our Lord today is triumphant. All his enemies he leads captive. The tone is, understandably, relatively bright and confident, despite a hint of B minor as we approach the final cadence. But the mood for this cantata can, and often does, change from movement to movement, as in the long alto recitative which follows immediately, beginning on a surprising dominant seventh chord on G-sharp. Yet it almost seems that the enemies who remain, whom I find too powerful and only too frightening, do not let me stay in peace. But since you have won a victory for me, then fight yourself by my side, by me, your child. Yes, indeed, already we feel in faith that you, O Prince of Peace, will fulfill us in your word and work. Again, there are some dramatic gestures here, some large leaps into dissonance, as for example when the alto refers to finding enemies too powerful and too frightening. But the music softens and becomes less erratic when the text seems to suggest it. In the final measures, as the text refers to the Prince of Peace fulfilling us through word and work, we hear an orderly sequence of seventh chords including one major seventh, each resolving up a fourth before the final gentle cadence on A major. The recitative is followed by a long and somewhat complex choral movement in A major. It begins with a brisk and fiery orchestral ritornello played forte, notable for its fast 16th note passages based on triadic figuration patterns and sweeping 32nd note scale lines. But after just nine measures, the momentum changes dramatically. We shift from duple meter to 3-4 and new dotted rhythms in the orchestral accompaniment and a bass soloist who introduces the line of text, Peace Be With You, which he then repeats twice more, beginning with a long sustained opening note and moving to a more rhythmically active descending phrase. After the bass line shifts up a half step, the bass soloist moves up a third and sings a variant of that phrase now heading toward the dominant E major. Then, dropping a fifth, he introduces another variant, ending on a long sustained note, 
as the harmonies supporting the line move back and forth between dominant and tonic. Let's hear that much. While the bass voice, representing presumably the voice of God and perhaps also the Lutheran hierarchy, has given soothing comfort to the congregation, you heard a sneak preview of what's coming next, the obviously more agitated group of believers, represented by the tenors, altos, and sopranos, who react more in the spirit of the ongoing fight, by no means finished despite Jesus' rising on Easter morning singing in a faster tempo equal to that of the opening ritonello and employing the music from the orchestral ritonello as their accompaniment. They charge in with voluns, how fortunate we are. Jesus helps us to fight and to subdue the rage of the enemy. Hell, Satan, give in. As you could hear, the orchestral part is not an exact duplication of the ritonello, at least not initially. In the second bar, the accompaniment leaves the fourth beat of the measure open to be filled by the chorus's short but enthusiastic interjection of Vol uns. The orchestra then begins again and at that point does virtually replicate the entire ritonello, including the sweeping 30-second note scales. The chorus is not quite as active as the accompaniment, rhythmically speaking, but it soon finds and keeps a strong sense of momentum, employing mostly triadic-based figuration patterns in sixteenths, along with slower-moving but still muscular lines in eighth notes, at times treated to sequential repetition. There's even a little bit of imitation, as the soprano's second phrase echoes immediately through the alto and tenor parts. And when Satan is referenced by name, the longer phrases are clipped off, as if to emphasize the point. You just heard a little of what happens next. The meter changes and the bass soloist returns with the same line of text, Peace be with you, and initially with the exact same melody and orchestral accompaniment. 
But in the last four bars of the bass's statement, things change a bit. The soloist line shifts up a step as the tonality moves away from E major, ending up four bars later in F sharp minor. After a two-bar orchestral tag, we then shift back from 3-4 to duple time with a tempo increase and launch into another orchestral ritornello of four measures, rather similar to the first, but redesigned to take us securely to the key of D major. The violins then re-enter with a new idea that opens with the ascending leap of a fifth and which shows somewhat more rhythmic independence between the voices than earlier. The alto enters first, with soprano and tenor jumping in with a fragment of imitation, but the text is different as well. Jesus calls us to peace and in our weariness revives spirit and body together. But not everything is new. The orchestral accompaniment is virtually a recreation of the opening ritonello, now down a fifth for the new key of D major. And then there is still another shift in meter and tempo, and the bass soloist returns again, still in D major, at least initially, and with the same text, although the melody, now set lower in the bass's range, with a few octave displacements here and there, seems to take on a little more gravity. Soon the sopranos, altos, and tenors again grow restless and interrupt for the last time, but this time beginning not with an interjection of vol uns, but rather o herr, o lord, this time repeated twice to introduce a new text. O Lord, help us and let us succeed in pressing on through death into your glorious kingdom. The three remaining vocal parts begin much as they had the first time they jumped in, but this time they introduce some new ideas along the way. And more importantly, they are not alone, at least not at the beginning. Rather than dropping out completely, the bass soloist joins in this time, singing Peace Be With You again, between the more excited choral declamations and adding this time a few vocal flourishes of his own. But after lending that small amount of assistance to the choral voices, the bass soloist withdraws from the fray, leaving the other voices to deliver the remainder of the text on their own. But it is the bass soloist that has the last word, as the tempo again slows, the meter changes, and the bass delivers its familiar melody for the last time, modified slightly for a temporary modulation to D major, before heading back to the original tonic of A major and the conclusion of the movement. Here's the ending of the movement beginning with the final choral passage where the bass sings along briefly and through the final bass solo and final cadence.
This is in many respects a unique movement, and that's why I've spent a little more time than usual trying to describe it. It's not as if Bach or other composers had never interjected solo passages within a choral movement before, although it's a real question whether this is a choral movement with solo interjections or a bass solo with choral interjections. At any rate, it's clear that the sometimes sudden changes in vocal resources tend to be matched to changes in mood. It's not that the reassuring statements by the bass are completely devoid of tension chords or dissonances, but they remain unmistakably secure and confident throughout, very much the voice of God reassuring an edgy body of believers who still feel as if they're very much in need of defense. And this goes back to earlier comments. On the Sunday after Easter, there is a sense that the victory has been won, but there is also an unescapable sense that none of us are out of danger yet. These opposing perspectives may not be completely reconcilable, but the last word is allotted to the text of Jacob Ebert's hymn. You Prince of Peace, Lord Jesus Christ, true man and true God, you are a strong helper in distress, in life and in death. Therefore, in your name, cry to your Father. Here is the final chorale. The next cantata we're going to look at is BWV 42, an English translation, on the evening of the same Sabbath. It was also composed for the first Sunday after Easter in Leipzig, this time a year later in 1725. As in the previous cantata, some of the movements employ biblical texts, others draw from chorales, and others are considered anonymous, although various names have been suggested for their authorship, even Bach himself. Craig Smith, in one of his always perceptive commentaries from the BachCantatas.com website, refers to the work as one of the gigantic masterpieces of the genre, and goes on to say that, in these cantatas, composed for the period after Easter, there are two tasks for the composer. The meaning and sense of Easter must permeate the work, and at the same time, the very real fear and sense of what happens next must dominate. There's little fearful about the outstanding opening orchestral symphonia in D major and duple meter, a work which, because of its quality and also because of historical probabilities, is often thought to have been based on an earlier concerto movement. The opening melody for the first ritonello, presented by the violins, might well be described as figuration-based in part because of the many repeated patterns, but it is a very fine melody nevertheless, making use of stepwise ascending motives along with triadic-based ones, along with a key and very noticeable motive consisting of large descending leaps of a sixth heard in bars three and four. Although the overall melody is somewhat repetitive, the effect is largely softened by the smoothly flowing harmonies beneath it. Here is a simplified example of the entire melody, which I'm going to refer to as thematic idea number one. 
With ample sequential activity both between phrases and within phrases, the melody spins out with inexorable logic, but it never seems mechanical or particularly predictable. And this is true in part because of the clever way in which it's harmonized. Not that its harmony is strikingly novel, far from it, but there's a wonderful sense of motion and a clear sense of direction behind it from the very beginning. The continual bass and viola begin by marching up and down in parallel tense, so that the repeated melodic ideas above are heard against a constantly changing lens. Here are the first nine measures. As you heard in the end of my example, after the violins have presented the melody, the oboes and bassoon then take it up, sounding very much like a solo group or concertino group. They present a new idea, although one clearly related to the opening Ritonello theme. Still in the key of D major, this new idea begins with a descending undulation down from F sharp, the third of the chord, and then passes to a distinctive descending fourth, which it repeats a couple of beats later. The oboes here are often moving in parallel sixths with the bassoon echoing their motives. Here is a simplified version of this new melody, the whole of which we're going to refer to as thematic idea number two. After just four bars and against a sustained chord from the woodwinds, we hear the return of the ritonello theme, thematic idea number one, in the strings, but it's broken off after a couple of measures to yield back to the concertino group theme, thematic idea number two. But this also is short-lived, and a longer version of the ritonello theme then takes control for four bars. But it too is then cut off with the entrance of the concertino group again, the two oboes and bassoon. But this time they enter it with a variant, not of thematic idea number two, the one originally associated with them, but with thematic idea number one. This is the sort of thing we've seen in several other Bach concertos. We hear a back and forth between the two sonorities, the whole orchestra dominated by the violins, and the smaller concertino group, featuring in this case two oboes and a bassoon. But we also hear a back and forth between the two main thematic ideas not always played by the original group associated with them. Let's hear from the introduction of thematic idea number two in the concertino group, continuing through some of the interchange between the strings and the concertino group, in which both groups reference both of the thematic ideas we've talked about, often in sequentially repeated patterns.
When we finally arrive at the final cadence, the final sonic chord is held with a fermata, because this particular sinfonia is in da capo form, and there is a middle section, still in D major, marked cantabile and piano. Against lively figuration patterns in the strings, the first oboe offers up a long breathed melody characterized by sustained tones interrupted by flurries of sixteenth notes, supported by the bassoon which answers in kind. After four bars, the second oboe replaces the first, with an equally expressive melody that moves a little farther afield tonally, ending up in B minor. At that point, both oboes and the bassoon combine in a more rhythmically active flow of sixteenth notes, based loosely on the first four notes of the ritornello theme, the bassoon actually engaging in imitation at the octave. Soon, the strings take center stage with the familiar ritornello theme, also known as thematic idea number one, sounding rather different now in a minor key. But the oboes and bassoon jump back in quickly, seizing upon the first three notes of the ritornello theme and tossing them and similar motives back and forth in an ascending pattern. We then encounter a familiar pattern in Bach, a series of descending suspensions in the oboes and bassoon against triadic arpeggio patterns in the strings, which, no surprise, are also drawn from the ritornello. As we continue on our way, the original concertino theme also enters the mix, and then, after further references to both of the main thematic ideas by both of the instrumental groups, the tempo slows to adagio, we cadence in F-sharp minor, and the da capo takes us back to repeat the first section. Here is the beginning of the middle section. It's a very impressive movement, full of very rich, though not overly complex, melodic ideas, perhaps the greatest of which occurs in the middle section. Following the opening symphony, a tenor recitative introduces our first text, from 1 John chapter 5, starting with verse 4. On the evening of the same Sabbath, as the disciples were gathered together and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. The setting is understandably rather ominous, with throbbing eighth notes in the continual bass constituting a reiterated pedal over which the initial tonic B minor chord moves quickly to a series of dissonant leading tone diminished sevenths. The melody above this is generally stepwise, but also features a couple of expressive ascending leaps of a sixth, one at the mention of Jesus' name. The most notable expressive gesture comes on the word furcht, or fear, which is reflected by a quick arpeggiation of a diminished seventh chord on D-sharp. Here is the entire recitative. Am Abend 
desselbigen Sabbat, da die Jünger versammelt und die Türen verschlossen waren, aus Furcht für den Jüden, kam Jesus und trat mitten ein. Whereas the recitative had shifted the mood from the confident and expressly lyrical tone of the opening bars of the Sinfonia to one of rather dark uncertainty, the alto aria which follows returns to a much more soothing and reassuring tone, employing the text, where two or three are gathered together in Jesus' beloved name, then Jesus appears in the midst of them and says to them, Amen. For what happens from law and necessity does not break the arrangements of the Most High God. In G major, marked adagio and in duple meter, it begins with an orchestral ritonello of 12 bars, one which also begins with repeated pedal tones in the continual bass, but the effect here, largely because of the change from minor to major, is much gentler. The central thematic idea presented in the opening ritonello is shared between the two oboes. It begins in the second oboe with the leap of a fourth before undulating around the note one step higher and then passing into a flow of sixteenth notes. Here is a simplified example of it. You'll notice that the first oboe answers right away, but with a slightly different motive, leaping up a seventh rather than a fourth, and eventually also breaking into a flow of sixteenth notes, sometimes in thirds with the second oboe. More motives are presented along the way, including a rather distinctive one that begins with a large ascending leap followed by a sixteenth note triplet. Here is a simplified example. Okay, now let's hear the entire Ritonello. The alto soloist actually enters with a different motive, 
not one I've singled out. It's also characterized by an opening ascending leap, but this time it's a gentle-sounding major sixth, soon followed by an ascending fourth before undulating back down almost to its starting point. The motives initially heard against the vocal melody in the oboes are somewhat new as well, although related to the ones I mentioned earlier. After a brief intervening ritonello, the alto returns with a slight variant of the same melody. The harmony and melody remain reassuring and composed, with the melody actually becoming rather florid at times, with long melismas of 30-second notes. After another brief ritonello, the first line of text is again repeated with a somewhat new melodic idea while we flirt with new tonal centers. After more florid embellishments, another ritonello takes us to a cadence on G major and the start of the middle section of this da capo aria. Let's hear an excerpt from the entrance of the alto. The contrasting middle section, switching to 12-8 with a tempo indication of Un poco andante, as usual employs the last part of the text. For what happens from love and necessity does not break the arrangements of the Most High God. The rich and relatively gentle sonorities of the first section here give way to a much more stripped-down sonority provided by the continuo alone, with the bassoon doubling the continuo bass. But if the sonority is less rich, the level of harmonic activity actually increases. The key of G major is undermined quickly as we head first to A minor and then stop off at both F major and D minor before heading back to A minor. The melody also shifts gears constantly, although it does make use of some stabilizing sequential repetition. And there is some notable word painting. The reference to the arrangements or orderings of the Most High God is provided with an elaborate melismatic flourish on each repetition. Here is an excerpt from the middle section. Das bricht, das höchste Wort. 
The da capo sign then sends us back to repeat the first section and conclude the aria. The next movement is marked as a chorale and is based on the text of a hymn by Jacob Fabricus, the title in English translation, Do Not Lose Heart, O My Dear Little Flock, although Bach does not make use of the melody associated with that hymn. The text is, Do not lose heart, O my dear little flock, even if your enemies intend to destroy you completely and seek your downfall, so that you are really distressed and fearful. This will not last long. Bach sets the text as a duet for soprano and tenor in B minor in 3-4 time, accompanied by continuo with the bassoon and cello providing an elaborate descending ostinato pattern marked by a series of distinctive rising half steps at the end of each measure. When the voices enter, the tenor begins and the soprano enters halfway through the next measure. As they sing Do Not Lose Heart again and again, the lines tend to be quite independent, the sopranos being a bit more active, although the two come together homophonically near the end of each phrase. Craig Smith calls these lines jagged and awkward, and while I would not go quite that far, they don't seem to be a reassuring or even convincing embodiment of the first line of the text. It's true that once we arrive at the phrase, my dear little flock, the voices do come together in warmer sounding parallel sixths, but this more comfortable gesture is short-lived. As we continue on to the text, even if your enemies intend to destroy you completely, we move back to D major, and the tenor introduces a new melodic idea, which is then taken up by the soprano of fifth higher. The word verstoren, to destroy, is emphasized with an elaborate melisma by the tenor, duly imitated a bar later by the soprano. The imitation doesn't last long, though, and the two soloists soon lapse into trading similar phrases back and forth for a while, before once again shifting back into homophonic mode to finish off the section in F-sharp minor. Let's hear it that far. Eventually, we arrive at the last part of the text, so that you are distressed and fearful this will not last long. Bach does not sugarcoat the potential struggles that lie ahead. As we proceed on, even as the tenor and soprano declaim the very last line of the text, this will not last long, 
there almost seems to be a sense of desperation in the voices as they move higher and higher into their ranges. Bach does not seem to be going out of his way here to offer comfort to the anxious believer. There is no da capo here, and really no sense of relief from the tension, as the bassoon and cello ostinato takes us to the end of the movement. But the bass recitative that follows picks up on the theme that God will stand by the believers in time of danger, with a text, An excellent example of this can be seen in what happened in Jerusalem. For when the disciples had gathered together in dark shadows for fear of the Jews, then my Savior came into the midst of them, as witness that he will be the protection of his church. Therefore, let his enemies rage. Of course, texts such as this one have come in quite understandably for a lot of criticism in the modern period. The reference to the fear of the Jews is doubly peculiar, of course, since everyone in the upper room was in fact themselves Jewish, as a number of commentators have pointed out. But, of course, these texts were put together in the aftermath of the by no means forgotten Thirty Years' War, a period in which the tendency to still see enemies lurking everywhere was rampant. The melody is typical of Bach's recitatives, perhaps its most dramatic touch coming at the conclusion where the words, Let the enemies rage, are repeated twice with a brief quickening of the tempo and an interjection from the bassoon and continuo bass. Man kann hiervon ein schön Exempel sehen, an dem, was zu Jerusalem geschehen. Denn, da die Jünger sich versammelt hatten in finstern Schatten, aus Furcht vor denen Juden, so trat mein Heiland mitten ein zum Zeugnis, dass er seiner Kirche Schutz will sein. Drum lasst die Feinde wüten, lasst die Feinde wüten. There is no cowering from enemies implied in the bass aria that follows, with an opening ritonello featuring a pair of violins bandying triadic bass figuration patterns about with occasional snatches of imitation. The mood is affirmative and confident right from the beginning. It becomes even more so with the entrance of the bass soloist, 
who sings, Jesus is a shield for his people when persecution strikes them. For them the sun must shine with the words written in gold, Jesus is a shield for his people when persecution strikes them. And the bass's melody line is every bit as bold and confident, beginning with the opening descent and then rapid ascent up the tonic chord of A major and continuing through some virtuosic passages of 16th notes at the reference to persecution striking. Comparisons to some of Handel's virtuoso hero arias have been made, but Bach's aria is perhaps a little more restrained than that, although the bass's final statement, a variant of his earlier ones, does contain one passage in which virtuoso 16th note melismas dominate for eight bars in a row. Here is the beginning of the aria. The final movement in F sharp minor is based on Luther's rather somber chorale, Graciously Grant Us Peace, which makes the point that the Christian desires to live in peace in an uncertain world, but continues to look to God for protection. Graciously grant us peace, Lord God, in our time. There is no one else who could fight for us except you, our God, alone. The second stanza is set to new music and expresses the hope that the government under which the people live will also help them lead a peaceful life in all godliness and respectability.
Cantata BWV 42 is certainly different in many ways from the first cantata we looked at, BWV 67, but it is similar in that it embodies the duality of the Christian's perspective on the first Sunday after Easter. The victory over death has been won, but the Christian still faces very real uncertainties and fears and requires the protection of his God. That's it for today, and our next episode will begin to look at Bach's well-known sonatas and partitas for unaccompanied violin. And, by the way, if you're interested in late 18th and early 19th century music, and in particular the music of Beethoven, you might want to check out The Beethoven Files, a recently launched podcast series, something of a companion to this one, that is available on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, and presumably other places in the future.